Section 3 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 2 great navigators of the eighteenth century by jules verne first part chapter two part one captain cook's predecessors one a as early as sixteen sixty nine roggevine the elder had petitioned the dutch west india company for three armed vessels in order to prosecute his discoveries in the pacific ocean his project was favorably received but a coolness in the relations between spain and holland forced the batavian government to relinquish the expedition for a time upon his deathbed roggevine forced from his son jacob a promise to carry the plan he had conceived into execution circumstances over which he had no control for a long time hindered the fulfillment of his promise it was only after several voyages in the indian seas after having even been judge in the batavian justice court that at length jacob roggevine was in a position to take the necessary steps with the west indian company we have no means of finding out roggevine's age in seventeen twenty one or of ascertaining what were his claims to the command of an expedition of discovery most biographical dictionaries honor him with but a slight mention perhaps of a couple of lines and fleurieux in his learned and exhaustive account of the dutch navigator was unable to find out anything certain about him moreover the narrative of the voyage was written not by Roggevine, but by a German named Behrens. We may, therefore, with some justice, attribute the obscurities and contradictions of the particulars given, and their general want of accuracy, rather to the narrator than to the navigator. It even appears sometimes, and this is far from improbable, that Roggevine was ignorant of the voyages and discoveries of his predecessors and contemporaries. Upon the 21st of August, 1721, three vessels set sail from Texel under his command. They were the Eagle, of 36 guns, and with a crew of 111 men, the Tienhoven, of 28 guns and 100 men, Captain James Bauman and the galley African of fourteen guns and a crew of sixty men, Captain Henry Rosenthal. Their voyage across the Atlantic afforded no particulars of interest. Touching at Rio, Roggevine went in search of an island which he named Aux Magdalant, and which would appear to be the same as the land of the Virgin. Hawkins, Virginia, and the archipelago of Falkland, or Malouine Islands, unless indeed it was southern Georgia. 
Although these islands were then well known, it would appear that the Dutch knew little of their whereabouts, as after vainly seeking the Falkland Isles, they set to work to look for the island St. Louis, belonging to the French, apparently quite unaware that they belonged to the same group. There are few lands, indeed, which have borne so many different names as Pepe's Isles, Conti Isles, and many which we need not mention. It would be easy to count up a dozen. After discovering, or rather noticing, an island below the parallel of the Straits of Magellan, about twenty-four leagues from the American continent, of two hundred leagues in circumference, which he named South Belgium, Roggevine passed through the Straits of La Mer, or possibly was carried by the current to sixty-two and a half degrees of southern latitude. Finally, he regained the coast of Chile, and cast anchor opposite the island of Mocha, which he found deserted. He afterwards reached Juan Fernandez, where he met with the Tienhoven, from which he had been separated since the 21st of December. The vessels left this harbor before the end of March, and steered to the west-northwest in search of the land discovered by Davis between 27 degrees and 28 degrees south. After a search of several days, Roggevine sighted an island upon the 6th of April, 1722, which he named Easter Island. We will not stop to enumerate the exaggerated dimensions claimed for this island by the Dutch navigator, nor to notice his observations of the manners and customs of the inhabitants. We shall have occasion to refer to them in dealing with the more detailed and reliable accounts of Cook and La Perouse. But, said Fleurieux, we shall vainly look in this narrator for any sign of learning on the part of Roggevine's sergeant-major. After describing the banana, of which the leaves are six or eight feet high, and two or three wide, he adds that this was the leaf with which our first parents covered their nakedness after the fall, and to make it clearer, further remarks that those who accept this view do so on account of this leaf being the largest of all the plants growing in either eastern or western countries, thereby plainly indicating his notion of the proportions of Adam and Eve. A native came on board the eagle. He delighted everyone by his good humor, gaiety, and friendly demonstrations. In the morning, Roggenwein distinguished an eager multitude upon the shore, which was adorned with high statues, who awaited the arrival of the strangers with impatient curiosity. For no discoverable purpose a gun was fired. One of the natives was killed, and the multitude fled in every direction, soon, however, to return in greater haste. Roggevine, at the head of a hundred and fifty men, fired a volley, stretching a number of victims on the ground. Overcome with terror, the natives hastened to appease their terrible visitors by offering them all they possessed. 
florieu is of opinion that easter island and davis island are not identical but in spite of the reasons with which he supports his opinions and the differences which he points out in the situation and description of the two islands it is impossible to avoid the conclusion that Rogovine and Davis's discoveries are one and the same. No other island answering to the description is to be found in these latitudes, which are now thoroughly well known. A violent storm of wind drove Rogovine from his anchorage on the eastern side of the island and obliged him to make for the west-northwest, he traversed the sea called Mauvais by Schouten, and having sailed eight hundred leagues from Easter Island, fell in with what he took to be the Isle of Dogs, so called by Schouten. Rogovine named it Karlshof, a name which it still retains. The squadron passed this island in the night without touching at it and was forced in the following night, by the wind and adverse currents, to the midst of a group of low islands which were quite unexpectedly encountered. The African was dashed against a coral rock, and the two consorts narrowly escaped the same fate. Only after five days of unceasing effort, of danger and anxiety, the crew succeeded in extricating the vessels and in regaining the open sea. The natives of this group were tall, with long and flowing hair. They painted their bodies in various colors. It is generally agreed now to recognize in Rogovine's description of the pernicious islands the group to which Cook gave the name of Palliser Isles. On the morning succeeding the day in which he had so narrowly escaped the dangers of the pernicious islands, Rogovine discovered an island to which he gave the name of Aurora. Lying low, it was scarcely visible above the water, and had the sun not shone out, the Tienhoven would have been lost upon it. As night approached, new land was perceived to which the name of Vesper was given, and it is difficult to decide whether or no it belonged to the Palliser group. Rogovine continued to sail between the fifteenth and sixteenth degrees, and was not long in finding himself, all of a sudden, in the midst of islands which were half-submerged. As we approached them, says Behrens, we saw an immense number of canoes navigating the coast, and we concluded that the islands were well populated. Upon nearing the land, we discovered that it consisted of a mass of different islands, situated close the one to the other, and we were insensibly drawn in amongst them. We began to fear that we should be unable to extricate ourselves. The admiral sent one of the pilots up to the lookout to ascertain how we could get free of them. We owed our safety to the calm that prevailed. The slightest movement of the water would have run our ships upon the rocks without the possibility of assistance reaching us. As it was, we got away without any incident worth mentioning. These islands are six in number, 
all very pleasant, and taken together may extend some thirty leagues. They are situated twenty-five leagues westward of the pernicious islands. We name them the Labyrinth, because we could only leave them by a circuitous route. Many authors identify this group with Byron's Prince of Wales Islands. Fleurieu holds a different opinion. Dumont d'Urville thinks them identical with the group of Vliegen, already seen by Schouten and Le Maire. After navigating for three days in a westerly direction, the Dutch caught sight of a beautiful island. Coconuts, palm trees, and luxuriant verdure testified to its fertility. But finding it impossible to anchor there, the officers and crews were obliged to visit it in well-armed detachments. Once more, the Dutch needlessly shed the blood of an inoffensive population which had awaited them upon the shore, and whose only fault consisted in their numbers. After this execution, worthy rather of barbarians than of civilized men, they endeavored to persuade the natives to return, by offering presents to the chiefs, and by deceitful protestations of friendship. But they were not to be deceived by the latter, and having enticed the sailors into the interior, the inhabitants rushed upon them and attacked them with stones. Although a volley of bullets stretched a number upon the ground, they still bravely persisted in attacking the strangers, and forced them to re-embark, carrying with them their dead and wounded. Of course the Dutch cried treason, not knowing how to find epithets strong enough for the treachery and disloyalty of their adversaries. But who struck the first blow? Who was the aggressor? Even admitting that a few thefts were committed, which is probable enough, was it necessary to visit them with so severe a punishment, to revenge upon an entire population the wrongdoing of a few individuals, who, after all, can have had no very strict notions of honesty. In spite of their losses, the Dutch called this island, in memory of the refreshment they had enjoyed there, Recreation Island. Rogovine gives its situation as below the sixth parallel, but his longitude is so incorrect that it is impossible to depend upon it. The question now arises whether the captain should prosecute his search for the island Espirito Santo de Quiros in the west, or whether, on the contrary, he should sail northward and reach the East Indies during the favorable season. The council of war, which Rogovine called to the consideration of this question, chose the latter alternative. The third day after this decision, three islands were simultaneously discovered. They received the name of Bauman, after the captain of the Tienhoven, who was the first to catch sight of them. The natives came round the vessels to traffic, whilst an immense crowd of the inhabitants lined the shore, armed with bows and spears. They were white-skinned, and only differed from Europeans in appearance, when very much tanned by the sun. Their bodies were not painted. 
A strip of stuff, artistically arranged and fringed, covered them from the waist to the heels. Hats of the same material protected their heads, and necklaces of sweet-smelling flowers adorned their necks. It must be confessed, says Behrens, that this is the most civilized nation, as well as the most honest, which we have met with in the southern seas. Charmed with our arrival, they received us like gods, and when we showed our intention of leaving, they testified most lively regrets. From the description, these would appear to have been the inhabitants of the navigator's islands. After having encountered the islands, which Rogovine believed to be Cocoa and Traitor Islands, already visited by Schouten and Le Maire, and which Fleurieu, imagining them to be a Dutch discovery, named Rogovine Islands, after having caught sight of Tienhoven and Groning Islands, which were believed by Pingray to be identical with Santa Cruz of Mendano, the expedition finally reached the coast of New Ireland. Here the discoverers perpetrated new massacres. From thence they went to the shores of New Guinea, and after crossing the Moluccas, cast anchor at Batavia. Their fellow countrymen, less humane than many of the tribes they had visited, confiscated the two vessels, imprisoned the officers and sailors indiscriminately, and sent them to Europe to take their trial. They had committed the unpardonable crime of having entered countries belonging to the East India Company, whilst they themselves were in the employ of the West India Company. The result was a trial, and the East India Company was compelled to restore all that it had appropriated, and to pay heavy damages. We lose all sight of Rogovine after his arrival at Texel upon the 11th July, 1723, and no details are to be obtained of the last years of his life. Grateful thanks are due to Fleurieu for having unraveled this chaotic narrative, and for having thrown some light upon an expedition which deserves to be better known. Upon the 17th of June, 1764, Commodore Byron received instructions signed by the Lord of the Admiralty. They were to the following effect. As nothing contributes more to the glory of this nation in its character of a maritime power, to the dignity of the British crown, and to the progress of its national commerce and navigation, than the discovery of new regions, and as there is every reason for believing in the existence of lands and islands in great numbers between the Cape of Good Hope and the Straits of Magellan, which have been hitherto unknown to the European powers, and which are situated in latitudes suitable for navigation, and in climates productive of different marketable commodities, and as, moreover, His Majesty's Islands, called Pepys and Falkland Islands, situated as will be described, have not been sufficiently examined for a just appreciation of their shores and productions, 
although they were discovered by English navigators. His Majesty, taking all these considerations into account, and conceiving the existing state of profound peace now enjoyed by his subjects, especially suitable for such an undertaking, has decided to put it into execution. Upon what seamen would the choice of the English government fall? Commodore John Byron, born on the 8th of November, 1723, was the man selected. From his earliest years he had shown an enthusiastic love of seafaring life, and at the age of seventeen had offered his services upon one of the vessels that formed Admiral Anson's squadron when it was sent out for the destruction of Spanish settlements upon the Pacific coast. We have already given an account of the troubles which befell this expedition before the incredible fortune which was to distinguish its last voyage. The vessel upon which Byron embarked was the Wager. It was wrecked in passing through the Straits of Magellan, and the crew, being taken prisoners by the Spaniards, were sent to Chile. After a captivity which lasted at least three years, Byron effected his escape, and was rescued by a vessel from Saint-Malo, which took him to Europe. He returned at once to service and distinguished himself in various encounters during the war with France. Doubtless it was the recollection of his first voyage round the world, so disastrously interrupted, which procured for him the distinction conferred upon him by the Admiralty. The vessels entrusted to him were carefully armed. The Dauphin was a six-rate man-of-war, and carried twenty-four guns, one hundred fifty sailors, three lieutenants, and thirty-seven petty officers. The Tamar was a sloop of sixteen guns and ninety sailors, three lieutenants, twenty-seven petty officers, commanded by Captain Muat. The start was not fortunate. The expedition left the Downs upon the 21st of June, but the Dauphin grounded before leaving the Thames, and was obliged to put into Plymouth for repairs. Upon the 3rd of July, anchor was finally weighed, and ten days later, Byron put in at Funchal in the island of Madeira for refreshments. He was forced to halt again at Cape Verde Islands to take in water that with which he was supplied having become rapidly wasted. Nothing further occurred to interrupt the voyage until the two English vessels sighted Cape Frio. Byron remarked a singular fact, since fully verified, that the copper sheathing of his vessels appeared to disperse the fish which he expected to meet with in large quantities. The tropical heat and constant rains had struck down a large proportion of the crew, hence the urgent need of rest and of fresh victuals which they experienced. These they hoped to find at Rio de Janeiro, where they arrived on the 12th December. 
Byron was warmly welcomed by the Viceroy, and thus describes his first interview. When I made my visit, I was received in the greatest state. About sixty officers were drawn up by the palace. The guard was under arms. They were fine, well-drilled men. His Excellency, accompanied by the nobility, received me on the staircase. Fifteen salutes from the neighboring fort honored my arrival. We then entered the audience chamber, and after a conversation of a quarter of an hour, I took my leave and was conducted back with the same ceremonies. We shall see a little later how slightly the reception given to Captain Cook some years afterwards resembled that just related. The Commodore obtained ready permission to disembark his sick, and found every facility for revictualling. His sole cause of complaint was the repeated endeavor of the Portuguese to tempt his sailors to desert. The insupportable heat experienced by the crew shortened their stay at Rio. Upon the 16th of October, anchor was weighed, but it was five days before a land breeze allowed the vessels to gain the open sea. Up to this moment the destination of the expedition had been kept secret. Byron now summoned the captain of the Tamar on board, and in the presence of the assembled sailors read his instructions. These enjoined him not to proceed to the East Indies, as had been supposed, but to prosecute discoveries which might prove of great importance to England in the southern seas. With this object, the Lords of the Admiralty promised double pay to the crew, with future advancement and enjoyments, if they were pleased with their services. The second part of this short harangue was the most acceptable to the sailors, and was received by them with joyous demonstrations. Until the twenty-ninth of October no incident occurred in their passage. Upon that date sudden and violent squalls succeeded each other, and culminated in a fearful tempest, the violence of which was so great that the Commodore ordered four guns to be thrown overboard to avoid foundering. In the morning the weather moderated somewhat, but it was as cold as in England at the same time of year, although in this quarter of the globe the month of November answers to the month of May. As the wind continued to drive the vessel eastward, Byron began to think that he should experience great difficulty in avoiding the east of Patagonia. Suddenly, upon the 12th of November, although no land was marked on the chart in this position, a repeated cry of land, land ahead, arose. Clouds at this moment obscured almost the entire horizon, and it thundered and lightened without intermission. It seemed to me, says Byron, that what had at first appeared to be an island was really two steep mountains, but, upon looking windward, it was apparent that the land which belonged to these mountains stretched far to the southeast. Consequently, he steered southwest. I sent some officers to the masthead to watch the wind and to verify the discovery. 
they unanimously asserted that they saw a great extent of country. We then went east-southeast. The land appeared to present entirely the same appearance. The mountains looked blue, as is often the case in dark and rainy weather, when one is near them. Shortly afterwards, several of our number fancied they could distinguish waves breaking upon a sandy shore. But after steering with the utmost caution for an hour, that which we had taken for land disappeared suddenly, and we were convinced, to our amazement, that it had been only a land of fog. I have passed all my life at sea, continues Byron, since I was twenty-seven, but I never could have conceived so complete and sustained an illusion. There is no doubt that had the weather not cleared so suddenly as it did, we should one and all on board have declared that we had discovered land in this latitude. We were then in latitude 43 degrees 46 minutes south and longitude 60 degrees 5 minutes west. The next morning a terrible gale of wind arose, heralded by the piercing cries of many hundred birds flying before it. It lasted only twenty minutes, sufficiently long, however, to throw the vessel on its beam end before it was possible to let go the halyards. At the same moment a blow from the sheet of the mainsail overthrew the first lieutenant and sent him rolling to a distance, while the mizzenmast, which was not entirely lowered, was torn to pieces. The following days were not much more favorable. Moreover, the ship had sunk so little that she drifted away as the wind freshened. After such a troublesome voyage, we may guess how gladly Byron reached Penguin Island and Port Desire on the 24th of November. But the delights of this station did not by any means equal the anticipations of the crew. The English sailors landed, and upon advancing into the interior, met only with a desert country, and sandy hills, without a single tree. They found no game, but they saw a few guanacos too far off for a shot. They were, however, able to catch some large hares, which were not difficult to secure. The seals and seabirds, however, furnished food for an entire fleet. End of section three. Recording by Malone.